And so here we are at our fourth and final of our four Sundays exploring Micah 6 verse 8, which I guess we've all got a pretty good handle on now. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? We might know the text well, but the challenge for us in this moment is how are we putting it into practice? How are we making this real in our lives and in our life together? We've heard that God requires something of us, that we're not finished yet, that God's purposes are still being worked out. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have kingdom work to do. And we've already looked at two of the things Micah tells us that work involves. A call to be a people who act justly and a call to be a people who love mercy. And so this morning we come to the final part of this verse where the call for us is to be people who walk humbly with our God. And we're going to think about that first by looking at one of Jesus' parables that I think speaks so well to this whole area. But as we do that, let us pray. Gracious God, in these moments, may your words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts and minds together in this moment be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Friends, it seems to have been one of Jesus' main aims, particularly in his parables, to undermine the self-confidence of those who are too sure of their acceptability to God and to raise the confidence of those who hardly dared hope that God might accept them. And this parable that we've heard this morning is as pointed as any other. It's the only one of Jesus' parables to be set in the temple and immediately this sense of the imposing building, which was still under construction in Jesus' day, following the destruction of its two predecessors, it rises up in the imaginations of the listeners. This was the sacred centre of the sacred city, which was itself the sacred centre of the sacred land. It was the pinnacle of the Jewish religion, the focus for their devotion a place that cannot be described without mentioning God. Now the Pharisees believed that strictly observing the law in every particular detail was how God wanted his people to live at that time. And this was at a time when their very existence was under threat from surrounding nations. And so they believed that this was the way forward, not political action, or violent rebellion, or just bobbing along with the status quo, they're going to hold ever more tightly to the rules and the regulations. And it would have gained them respect uh, of many around them, even among those who felt they could never aspire themselves to such levels of devotion. So it's no surprise to see a Pharisee coming up to the temple to pray. The tax collector, however, that's a different story. Always labelled in the group of people collectively known as sinners, they were a despised collection of people. They were traitors working for the Roman oppressors of their own people. A task which may have earned them money, but also would have brought them incredibly low popularity rankings. 
they were among those people who have made no effort whatsoever to emulate the Pharisees and their kind. They'd essentially given up on the worthwhileness of paying attention to the law. A sinner going to the temple. Few, if any, of those listening to Jesus as he tells this story for the first time are expecting this to end well. Nothing but humiliation and shame will come of this decision. But even tax collectors, people who have made bad decisions, those who are working in situations who are difficult, who have not been kind, even people like that have spiritual needs and longings too. They didn't necessarily want to abandon God or always set out purposely to cut themselves off from the community of faith. What they couldn't do, though, was be content with the attitude of pretense that said all would be well if only they kept the law strictly enough. They knew that life was more complex than that. They had doubts. They had questions. They'd found that the religious community wasn't a space for such things. And so we find the tax collector in our story going up to pray at the same time as the Pharisee. He would be allowed in the temple, apparently. Eyebrows would already have been raised at that, I suspect. Who let him in? If I'd have known that he was coming, I'd have come to the previous service. It's not like it used to be. Look at the kind of people who come these days, and so on. This is like watching all the people that uh, you might not expect to be in church arriving together. It's like the drug dealers and the strippers and the loan sharks and the hitmen all walk in following the bishops and the elders and the theology lecturers. As well as being shocking, it's just quite frankly a bizarre scene. There's almost comedy value in it. And then as the parable goes on, we hear them praying. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Sounds unbearably snobbish to us, doesn't it? And it is. But it wouldn't have been dismissed so lightly by those first listeners to Jesus. We know of other ancient prayers of Jewish teachers that were similar. And the Pharisee does thank God that he's not like other people. He at least on some intrinsic level recognises that any holiness or goodness that he has is a gift from God and not something he's entirely achieved on his own. He strikes us as arrogant, but no one can doubt his disciplined adherence to the moral and ethical codes of his faith. He's the faithful, dependable type on whom many a religious community is built and sustained. But for this Pharisee, the tax collector nearby summed up all that he was thankful not to be. Involved in dubious financial dealings, careless about God's law, keeping company with the wrong people and being influenced by the wrong things. In contrast, further away, in the more shadowy corner of the temple, safely away from the Pharisee, we find our tax collector, head bowed, beating himself across the chest. God have mercy on me, a sinner. There's no sense of this man thinking of himself too highly or of being superbly religious. He's gone to the place where offerings were given to God to demonstrate a desire for forgiveness, to express his own longing to find acceptance. He doesn't make excuses. He knows 
he isn't all sorted. He can only throw himself at God's feet and ask for God's mercy because mercy is the only thing he dare hope for in this moment. And Jesus' conclusion is a simple one. It was this man, the tax collector, who goes home justified before God, not the Pharisee. Jesus, how does that work? You are joking. Seriously, do, do you mean that? That can't possibly be true. Justified here means basically it was this man's prayer that was heard and answered. He was the one accepted by God. He was the one who could truly participate in the coming of God's kingdom. He has a place reserved for him at the table. His small faith had won through to the big heart of God and he was indeed blessed with mercy. But notice what the parable doesn't tell us. Jesus doesn't tell us what these men experienced when they went to the temple. The Pharisee might well have left feeling great. How they feel is not really the point. Jesus is simply calling all those who are listening to go further than looking and thinking about outward appearance and to imagine an alternative way. Imagine that a humble tax collector is acceptable to God and a self-assured Pharisee is not automatically so. It's rather succinctly summed up in the closing proverb. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Or if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to simply be yourself before God, you will become more than yourself in God. In holding on to it so tightly, the Pharisee had in fact cheapened and weakened the laws of God and reinterpreted them in a way which seemed designed to keep the riffraff at bay and reinforce a hierarchy in the people of God that meant so many people were just told over and over that they just weren't welcome. Well, Jesus came to change that and declares the gates into the kingdom of God are wide open for all. And it's part of the calling of the church today to keep changing that and making sure that things are open to all. Yet, the Pharisee is not quite the panto villain here and the tax collector the great friendly bubbly character with a useless job. These sorts of oversimplified ways of viewing people belong only in cheap novels. If the Pharisee is simply the villain and the tax collector the hero, then each get what they deserve and there's no surprise of grace and mercy here at all. The point, the broader point, the more significant point is perhaps that we simply can't tell by looking at outward badges of virtue who has a heart after God's own. And I don't know about you, but it's been my experience that those who really have a heart after God's own I'm particularly fussed about making sure other people know about it. We've missed the mark if we read this story and our reaction to it is, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee, because at that moment we just become like the Pharisee. And we're all, if we're honest, have a little bit of the Pharisee in us, things that we expect real Christians to do. We all have our own expectations and much of the time they're well wide of the mark because we don't really know what's going on in somebody's heart and somebody's mind. It's too easy to judge each other 
when the truth is we have little or no earthly idea about what's going on. Thankfully, God does. It's only once we've recognised something of ourselves in the Pharisee that we should feel free to associate ourselves with a tax collector. Often when we discover something of how fantastic it is to have a heavenly father who loves us so much, we have this need to be forgiven, to offer all ourselves to God and ask for forgiveness. But then gradually we move away from the place of knowing we feel forgiven. It all becomes a bit more routine. And without realising it, humility can ebb away and we find ourselves slipping into the Pharisee costume after all. So how do we, whilst going on with God and being confident in his grace and power and strength, remain humble of heart? Because we, we know a humble person when we meet one and what a blessing they are. Well, friends, I think partly it's about being honest with God about the stuff we get wrong. Not ignoring it, not trying to pretend everything's all right, but confessing it to God and trusting in God's forgiveness. In 1 John 1, we read, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that never stops being true. We don't ever become good enough entirely in our own strength. But we are blessed with God's mercy and he can bless us with so much, whatever it is that we've done. Sometimes we hold back from beginning or continuing on our journey of faith, sometimes from baptism, sometimes from starting new things with God, because we think we don't know enough, we think we're not good enough. But that's exactly the point, no one ever is, except through and in and with Jesus. And when we do get things wrong, and it is when, not if, we can pray the prayer that the tax collector prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is known uh, to many Christians around the world as the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's been used for centuries by Christians all around the world. It's short, it's easy to remember, it's good for praying in the car, in the meeting, instantly in that moment of, oh no, I shouldn't have done that. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As well as that, it's also about saying thank you to God, saying it often, not taking what we have for granted, not expecting things to be great and then getting miffed when there's a problem, but remembering that all good things are a gift from God in the first place. The humble person, aware of their shortcomings and failings, coming in search of mercy, will always find it in God. And it's our job also to make sure that they will always find it in God's people. Would people speak of us as being humble? Would that word be near the top of the list if they were describing our church? Jesus came to bust open the rules and the religious pomposity and the grandstanding, all the stuff which said who was in and who was out. The tax collector came knowing that they needed more of God and God's mercy. That's all God ever needs to hear. And so we thank God that God's mercy is never dependent on our religious accomplishments, but on God's never-ending and unconditional love. We thank God that we follow a saviour who demonstrated humility with each breath that he took. We thank God that we serve a king who is always able to meet our need for him, however big it gets.
If there's one other thing to grasp from the parable this morning in the context of talking about humility, it's that we don't really know what's going on with other people in their heart, in their mind, in the parts of their lives that we do not see. And because of that, we do well to take on board the words of Martin Luther King, who when speaking to a group of ministers said, we must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision. Not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. It's not just about our connection with God. It's about our connection with other people. And, you know, I think humility, being willing to say, I don't know, to practice the discipline of not having to have the last word. Friends, it's very winsome. One of the challenges for the church in these days is that we often speak into the world with a certainty about everything that can't ever really be ours. And it comes across as arrogance. I was reading this week some writing of a former missionary in Central America who said, if you don't sound like you're still learning, it's doubtful I'm still listening. And I think that captures so much of the spirit of this moment. People are after authenticity and questions and integrity. And we can't pretend to be experts in things we don't know anything about. And there's so much about God we don't know, never mind everything else. And so we must speak with the humility appropriate to our limited vision. Humility isn't something just for the super spiritual and sacred people. It's something for us to work on and work towards as we seek to show the world something of Jesus Christ, who, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. It's a Venn diagram only the creator of the universe would put together. It's a combination that Jesus makes real in his incarnation. It's a calling that we're to devote our whole lives to living out. Friends, may God bless you as you seek to make it a reality in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we do remember how faithful you have been to each of us for the things you blessed us with. Thank you that you love us as we are and that we don't need to pretend with you. We pray that you'd help us to go on depending on you in everything, not trusting in our own goodness and strength. Help us to be humble and filled with mercy for others, believing the best in others, not thinking too highly of ourselves. Help us to be disciples who are known as humble people so that we might be able to give you the glory in all things. And Lord, we ask these prayers, not so that we can say that we're great, but so that we can say that you are. Help us to be transformed and changed so that we might point more people to you. And this we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.